It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. The Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays Baseball. Here's your host, Neil Solons. Well, we certainly appreciate you joining us for our latest podcast. Uh, we certainly have enjoyed having so many of the members of that 2008 World Series team joining us. And with us right now is another member of that group. Uh, he had a successful major league career that spanned 13 different seasons, 21 total as a professional. He was part of three seasons with the race, including 2008. And over a seven-year stretch, had at least 60 appearances every year. Uh, for a seven-year period, and he still lives in Tampa Bay, and that's Trevor Miller. Trevor, great to see you, and thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Neil. It's great to see you, too, and after you're saying all that, it makes my arm hurt a little bit. (laughs) How are you? How are you doing um, through this, obviously, very challenging stretch for everybody? For sure, yeah. We're doing fine. Our lives didn't change a whole lot because we care for our daughter, Gracie, who's a very handicapped uh, person. Uh, going to turn 16 here at the end of the month, which is hard to believe, but you know, we don't get to go out a whole lot of places because of that. Um, we just stay here in our house most of the time, which is a blessing. We live in a beautiful home in a beautiful community. And, uh, you know, we were always washing hands with her anyway. So none of that was new to us. I did have to stop giving my pitching lessons for about six weeks or so, which was, was tough to, to handle. But I started a little thing on Facebook where I'd post something weekly and we'd have a little discussion, a little back and forth Q&A with some of my students just there stay connected and give them something different to do than sit on the couch and watch Netflix or play video games. So, and I gave them some workouts to do so they could stay in shape. Uh, spent a lot of time in the pool, a lot of time reading books and uh, enjoying some family time with my wife and beautiful young daughter. That's awesome. And I want to talk more about Gracie too. Um, and because she was obviously a, a big part of your life through your period with the Rays and, and onward. Mm-hmm. Um, before that though, how are your other kids doing are they now fully grown and out of the house or they are yeah our oldest Tyler he's actually deployed right now he's in the army um he's got about four years in now should be making sergeant here pretty soon Uh, but he's over over in Iraq right now doing his job keeping us all safe so we're very proud of him for that Uh, and we miss him a a ton Uh, he was going to come home before the virus hit uh, for my oldest daughter's birthday party and then they locked everything down so we haven't seen him in person in quite some time and won't probably until December, hopefully. Um, but we do get to see him, you know, through FaceTime and things like that. So it's not too awful bad. And then Mackenzie's doing great. She just graduated from USF uh, this year and didn't have a ceremony. Just got to see her name come up on the screen like everybody else. But still, the accomplishment is the same. And we're super proud of her. And she's applying to law school and headed to that in another three years of studying hard. And then she's on her way. You've got uh, reason to be proud and uh, thank Tyler for his service uh, to our I will, yeah. Um, and how long have you not been teaching on the, on the side with, with pitching lessons and how much do you enjoy that? I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do. I look forward to it every single day. Um, and I'm all indoors here uh, now, so it's a lot easier on me. I'm not out in the sun, you know, coaching. I'm not uh, throwing batting practice anymore. I'm just strictly doing pitching lessons and uh, taking my guys through that. I started doing it right when I retired. It was my 
my plan, my exit strategy was going to be to start my either my own facility um, and start teaching uh, baseball that way. We ended up being able to do it here out of the house, so the overhead is low, and uh, give probably about 35 pitching lessons a week. So that's more than enough. Very blessed to have that, and I have some great students, great families. So life is good here, man. Who were the teachers that you enjoyed um, working with? And who do you think has had the most influence on you becoming, in essence, a teacher of pitching? My father, probably first and foremost, kind of the, the conversations that we would have after outings um, and how, how has, he had great tact and great timing uh, for when to be, to be a, uh, able to approach me about things, especially if it went bad. He'd give me some time to cool off. But there was always that you did a great job pitching yesterday, but what about the third inning where you walked the leadoff guy, you know, so it was always never, never be satisfied, uh, never, never be content. And uh, I really learned a lot about, you know, how to handle uh, being able to coach a kid at the right moment. Because sometimes if they're, if they're, they're checked out, there's nothing you're going to say that they're going to, they're going to be able to understand or get. So you got to have the, the right timing and the right ability to convey your message to, uh, to each and each individual student, because they're all different. I consider myself more of a teacher than a coach because there's a lot of psychology involved and you got to get to know these guys and understand how they learn. And some of them can learn by listening. Some of them can learn by visually doing it. Some of them have to do it to understand it. Um, you gotta, you gotta know that. Um, and then I had some good coaches coming through, uh, Rich Bombard. I had quite a few seasons. Um, we called him Bombi uh, when I was coming up through Detroit. Um, great man, always, always positive. That's the one thing I learned from him. And, and I try to teach not only my students that, but my, parents or my parents who are coaches that baseball is hard enough, man. The game will beat you down all by itself. You don't have to help it along by being negative and yelling and screaming. The game already does that. So to counterbalance that for your, your student or your child is to be more positive and uplifting in those situations. And then that helps them keep their balance, keep their head cool out there and be able to play comfortably. And so the game's not going a million miles an hour for them and they're falling behind. So I learned that from him, Jim Hickey, another great guy. Learned a lot from him. Jim was supremely prepared. Um, 08 season, in my opinion, was one of his best. Um, all of our coaching staff had great years. People always want to talk about the players and how well we did, but from top to bottom, everybody on the staff, clubhouse guys included, heck, even the parking attendants, everybody was on it, man, and had the greatest years of their lives uh, doing what they had to do to help the team out. So uh, Jim was a, a great influence on me uh, for being prepared and understanding, you know, the statistics and things like that, that they're really heavy with in the game right now. Um, and breaking down video, video analysis, things like that. You can use those tools to help you get over a hump or get back to a, a spot where you're doing really well, figure out your opponent a little bit, what his weaknesses are at, at that moment, not what they were a month ago, but what's he doing well right now coming into this series? And how can I exploit that to my advantage and help our team win a ball game? So, um, yeah, those, those are guys that really come to mind. Dave Duncan, another guy in uh, St. Louis that, man, the work ethic of that man, he, would, he was always there. When, I don't care who got to the ballpark. Dave was already there. I mean, he was there for hours ahead of time in his room on his computer just going over game planning for the upcoming game and the whole series, and it was relentless. He never missed a beat. Um, so I learned a, a good work ethic from him on how to coach and be prepared for, for sure. So, yeah, those are the guys that come to mind, man. Have you had anyone uh, drafted yet or get to the big leagues? And what would that mean to you to be able to teach someone who got there? Yeah, I've had, I've had a couple guys 
Um, my very first lesson, Matt Wynn, um, ended up getting drafted and uh, pitched up to high A ball. I think he's since retired, couldn't make it to the big leagues all the way, but you know how hard that is. Um, Carson Ragsdale, a kid that uh, just come out of USF. I worked with him uh, for a couple of years here when I first started up. So it was good to see that he got signed by the Phillies and is on his way. So there's quite a few different guys that have gone on college and gone under the pros, but I don't hang my hat on that. That's, they did all the work, man. I just was there to help it along. I don't need to go out there and tout my own praises because I, I work with those kids. They, they get all the, the praise, and I wish them all the best in their career and hope it's successful and they all stay healthy. Well, it's nice that, again, you're, you're giving back to a game that obviously gave you such tremendous opportunities. I'm curious, as we look back on the 2008 season, you decided to come in February. You didn't sign till late, and you had been there in 04 and 05. What actually led you back to the Rays that year? Andrew Friedman. Yeah. Uh, he kind of reached out to us in the offseason. was like, I can't discuss anything with you right now because it just it wasn't the time for it. But when it is time, we want you back here. And you know, we ended up having a meeting, uh, he and my wife, and just a little lunch just talking about you know, where the team was headed and how he wanted us to be a part of it and just to stay pat because you were going to get some offers. And we did. We took all, every, all the offers that came in and, and just waited. And then we always wanted to be with the Rays. I tried to stay on um, after the 05 season. Uh, and we just we had a hiccup with the negotiating process there uh, with Jerry and uh, my agent. And then it all worked out for the best, man, because who knows, I may have stayed in 06 and then been let go and not been there for 08. And instead, I went to Houston for two years and pitched well there and then got the chance to come back in 08 and have this beautiful run that we had that everybody keeps talking about. When you stepped in that clubhouse in spring training in 08, and again, mm -hmm. you only signed a couple weeks before spring training started, did you notice an immediate difference from 05 to the start of 08, or were you still wondering, okay, where are we going to be this year? I did. Uh, you could just tell that there was there different players there. There were some, you know, the, the guys that had been there, there were you know, the prospects that had come up. Um, but there are a lot of different faces that were supremely talented um, and were fun to be around. I mean, from the first meeting we had um, out on the field with Joe, um, we had there was jokes and laughter and nine equals eight. And don't tell anybody what this means just yet. So we felt like we had to keep a secret and we'll, we'll release it on the public and when it's time. But you could tell that we were already thinking about going on a run because we were bonding so well and had such a good time. And I remember guys playing music and um, like a, had their own little band um, and Al Lang playing songs afterward, uh, the workouts and jamming out. And, um, it was just a great vibe. You could tell that everybody liked each other. There was not any of that standoffishness. Now, don't get me wrong, everybody, young guys go hang out with young guys, old guys hang out with young guys, bullpens, bullpen, position players are position players, but that's life. That's the game. That's the locker room. But, man, nobody was standing away from anybody, talking behind their back, gossiping. Everybody was truly on board for the fun we were about to have. Was there a point, though, where you thought during the year, okay, yeah, it's different, but this team actually is going to really win a lot of games, got a chance to go to the playoffs. When did you start to believe that? I thought – I saw it in spring training. I, I was hoping that um, – and Dave Wills talks about this a lot still – um, I was hoping that we were going to come in and yeah, have a good time, but we we're going to be a team that could stand up to the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees of our division, because that's what it was going to take to be successful and go on a run. Um, so it doesn't matter how much talent you have, but you have to have some, some chutzpah, you know, you got to have some, some courage and some, some balls, if you will. Um, and we didn't really have that in 04 and 05. We were just kind of going through a season, like expecting to lose and, 
we would be the, the whipping post. We'd just go into Boston and New York, and if we got swept, we got swept, and nobody really cared. And it was kind of disappointing. It was a really long two years uh, for me and for the guys that really wanted to win and, and change the dynamic of the, the double raise and put them into a, a, get their first winning season, for crying out loud. We, we were able to get to 70 games, but that's, that's nothing. Um, but um, coming back, you know, for 08, I went to a luncheon down in Sarasota to start the season in spring training. And Dave kind of asked that question of what's it going to take for the Rays to get some respect in our division. And I said, well, just from life experience, if you got a bully that keeps knocking you around, you got to stand up to him and knock him on his rear end. And then it's not over. He's going to get back up because he thinks you got lucky and you have to put him back down on his butt again. And then sure enough, spring training, we had a little incident with the Yankees. Um, Johnny Gomes came running in and, the Duncan was at second base and we got in a little scrap there. Obviously the one in Boston we got in was a big, huge one during the season, but you could tell our team was going to back each other up and we were not afraid of anybody. And I was like, Oh, we got a chance now. And they took notice and they came after, came at us time and time again. And every time they came, we put them down. So that's how we got to where we were and ended up winning that division and going on a run to the world series, man. So many people gave me great perspectives on where they were for each of those scraps. So were you even at the spring training game against the Yankees? If so, what do you remember? And if not, let's fast forward to the Boston Coco versus Shields. What do you remember about yeah. where you were when that happened? I, I wasn't at the one where EJ ran over the catcher and kind of started that process, but we'd heard about it and we saw the re replays all over ESPN about it. And uh, we were like, that's good hard-nosed baseball right there. And, and you know, it's unfortunate that he got hurt, but that's our game. That's our sport. Or at least it was since we changed the rules. And uh, everybody was congratulatory of EJ for playing hard and ready to back him up. And then I was at the game in spring training where he slid in hard and then we got in a little scrap and you know, Johnny came running in, knocked him on his rear end. And we had some words exchanged. That's usually how it is out there. There's not too many punches thrown. There's a lot of grabbing and talking smack and whatnot. But um, that's where we first stood up. And then the one in Boston, I remember that, that run in Boston from the bullpen is long, man. So you remember you're trying not to pull a hammy on your way all the way to the to that scrap. Then I mean, almost to our dugout. But by the time we got there, people were already, you know, calming down a little bit. But there was still a lot of tensions and a lot of possible hey, we're going to go again. But all the, the big stuff had already been done. And uh, Shieldsy, man, if you don't landed that right, oh, Lord have mercy. I mean, Coke would have been in the hospital. Poor Shieldsy might have broke his hand. But, man, it was a, it was a good, good little memory from everybody. And. And that was another time where you're like, we're not taking any more of this junk. We're here for a reason. We know we're good. And you're going to stop doing this. We're just going to play hard-nosed baseball. And if we got to go again, we'll go again. So, I chatted with Johnny about that. And he said the difference that he saw was in the Yankee game, guys were kind of like holding them back. Okay. He said yeah. when it got to Boston, he said everybody was kind of in the fight. And he said that's when he yeah. realized, all right, we're all, we're all truly have come together over the last couple months. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it seems like I always get and end up with one of the bigger guys for whatever reason. I know me and Jason Baratek, I think we're holding on to each other real tight for that one, make sure we didn't do anything stupid, and then trying to calm everybody down at the same time. But, yeah, that was, it was heated. Uh, one of the better ones, it, almost compared to the one I had in, in St. Louis with the, the Reds. Uh, that was probably the biggest one mm -hmm. I'd been into. Um, actually, me and Billy Hatcher got into it in that one a little bit. He ripped me out of the pile. I was trying to get Jim Edmonds off of – um, Dave Duncan and then Billy grabbed me a chokehold around the neck and ripped me out of there. And then 
I got him in a headlock and away we went dancing around. That one ended up making the papers, but no punches are were thrown. I, I have never thrown a punch in one of those. It's just more of a bullpen guy coming in to clean it up and make sure the other bullpen guys aren't doing anything stupid. So everybody has their role in that. And Johnny Johnny was our brawler, man. So and if you're gonna have a make a statement, you turn your brawler loose, man. You turn your bruiser loose and let him go do his thing. Tremendous character guy. What you, since you started talking about the chemistry in the group, what was the chemistry like in that bullpen and who are you still close with? Dan Wheeler, for sure. Yeah, Dan's my man. Um, and Balf, I see him in a lot of golf tournaments. Man, we're always in, he's staying in great shape, too, Balf is. Um, and then Chad Bradford, also, when he came in, he just folded right in so beautifully. Um, there's a funny story that, you know, Dan was always uh, about half a season behind uh, Chad and I for service time. And Chad and I both got our – uh, gold cards, which is for eight years of service at the same time. And it's just a card that says you can get any major league or minor league game uh, for free. And Dan didn't get his. So Chad and I wore ours out like belt buckles for the whole one series just to put it in Dan's face that he didn't have his yet. He couldn't stand that, man. But, you know, he took a ribbon and he'd give it back as good as he would take. But um, we were, had a great mix of guys that were more veterans and then the younger guys that were just full of energy and passion. And we let them have their energy and passion. Uh, Troy Percival came in um, when he signed there and uh, made sure that we had a room that we never had before that we could kind of escape to before the game or during the game to stretch, um, grab some water, get on a bike, and, and get loose. And uh, Balfour and JP and some of the other guys, the younger guys, once we would, the veterans would leave, they would have like a wrestling match down there, man, to get fired up. You could hear them yelling and screaming. Uh, like it was a WWF contest, and then they come out just breathing, fired, ready to go into those games, man. And we start, we would just crack up laughing. You know, we, we didn't want them to stop because it, that's what made them on point and ready to go. And that's another reason the team had such great success, period, is that the veterans weren't standing over like mom and dad, over everybody saying, you can't do that. That's not how you act. We just let everybody be themselves and have fun and play comfortably out there. We didn't have to worry about somebody tapping them on the shoulder and be like, hey, that's not right. And if there was a certain situation that came up, yeah, we would step in privately and be like, hey, guys, we can't do that. But other than that, we let them go. We turned the dogs loose, and, and man, did they have some great, great seasons. So it was a lot of fun to watch. They did. And, you know, you were part of, obviously, that year. You went to the playoffs very early in your career and also the following year with St. Louis. But was 08 your favorite year, and if so, why? Absolutely. Yeah, everybody asked me that question, what was your favorite team or favorite year? And without hesitation, it's the, the Rays. We had so much fun. I I had that much fun in the big leagues for a full season ever. The big leagues is great. It's a lot of fun, but it can be a grind sometimes. And if you're losing, it's not fun. Um, and we, everything we did or we touched was brand new. We were the first to do it. And you end up being like rock stars a little bit when that happens. It's just great timing for us. I, I had a Rayhawk for crying out loud. You know, I was 35 years old walking around with a Rayhawk and, and loved it. Um, another story about that is we were kind of, the older guys were kind of holding out on that because we weren't so sure about having Rayhawks at our age and if we should do it. And uh, I remember Dan was like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And uh, I went home and I just kind of looked at my son. I said, man, we got we got to get this. We got to do this right now to show the, the younger guys that we're all in to, for this run we're about to make through the through September and stuff. And uh, I had my wife shave Rayhawks into my son's head and my head that night. And when I showed up the next morning, I think it was a Sunday day game, I came in that locker room and Dan looked at me and his face just – sunk you know he's like oh my god chubby you said you weren't going to do it now we got to do it i'm like we got to go man i'm sorry we got to be good teammates here 
and they did. They, they got their little faux hawks going and, and joined in like I knew they would. But yeah, I think I, Dan was a little upset with me after that one, but he got over it, and we ended up having a, a nice run. And man, there were Ray Hawks everywhere. There's grown men going into office buildings with that stuff, and kids taking it to school with them. So, and that's just one of the nuances that that came out of being so successful. Um, in a way that you have Ray Hawks going on and people still talking about it. I remember coming back from, I believe it was Chicago. Um, we got back really early in the morning on our flight and uh, we flew into St. Pete, I believe. And there were thousands of people there waiting for us to get off the plane, man. It's like we were the Beatles or something. And we were like, they were looking around, wow, look at this. Thing. I mean, you could just tell that the entire community was behind us now. Like they weren't so sure. They were following along with the, the rhetoric from, you know, all the media outlets and some of the other teams that, Oh, this team will they'll they'll cool off in the end of May. There's no way they'll be there at the All Star break. And yet there we were. There's no way they're gonna be there in August. Hey, we're still here, guys. What you gonna do about it? September they'll fall off. And we just never did. And that's when the fans are like, they're gonna do it. And you just see the change in the community all around that everybody was raised. I mean, we had people in Hawaii, I mean, we were followed by, you know, globally uh, because we were such an underdog and people always love the underdog story. So it was great to be a part of that, man. No doubt. And in, um, in, against Minnesota, you were on the mound when that final out was recorded for the first ever playoff spot. What do you remember about that, and how fast was your heart beating? <laughs> yeah, well, I remember warming up down there, and uh, you know, I was hoping that Percy was going to pull it out, you know, have his moment out there. Because uh, he, he kind of had an up-and-down season. You know, had a lot of injuries that he was battling through, so it would have been a fantastic moment for him to end up with a great, great career that he had. Um, but he just couldn't quite get it done. And I remember jogging out there. I remember him handing me the ball. He didn't, you know, he stood there and waited. And he's like, this is your moment. Get it done, man. Come on, you can do this. I'm like, all right, man, thanks. And so I took the ball, did my warm-ups routine. And then, you know, Joe's on waiting on deck. And uh, I remember ball one, <laughs> ball two, ball three. And, you know, the crowd's on their feet. They're just like, let me get this game over so we can celebrate. I had to step off and take a deep breath and be like, just throw the ball over the plate. Just go get him. Come on. We got a big enough lead. You don't need to be walking people out here. Deep breath. Got strike one. And then I missed my spot on the 3-1 pitch. It's supposed to be outside. I ended up running inside and jammed him. And up down the right uh, the line, it went and left. And Longo made the catch. And the rest is history. And once he made the catch, I just turned around and watched the sea of humanity running at me in all those raised jerseys. And we did our thing after that. And that's probably one of the, the highlights of my career is being able to say that I was the guy that got the last out to help this organization get to the playoffs for the very first time. What do you remember about the final out of the ALCS, where you were and what that celebration meant? I forgot my glove, just running like gangbusters to that pile. You know, first place you come up, you see, catch it, catch it, get it. And then we got to play and here we go. And we're on, on another celebration, which we started to get good at. You know, the first kind of celebration, we were like, we don't really know what to do. You know, by that time, we'd already had two or three. So we knew how to party after those, and we went and had a, a fantastic celebration um, for that um, cl clinching to go to the World Series. I remember even our kids got involved. The youngsters came in after we'd done our thing, and they ran in there, and they got all the orange juices and the apple juices out and waters, and they were dousing each other and ketchup. I mean, you name it, they were just – it was a mess. The ride home was the most amazing smell you would ever have because I had – my son, my daughter, and my nieces and nephews were also in there uh, while we were doing that. So they couldn't take showers, so the ride home was, was pretty potent. But they all remember that and uh, that they were involved and they got to do it. And, you know, what, what other kids can really say that out there, that they got to be a part of a, 
a celebration in a in a locker room. And uh, the only setback was that my wife didn't really get to enjoy it. This is the one that you know I asked people asked me about it the next day, and I said, well, um, you know, Gracie ended up right at at that last out. She plugged off in her trach, and so she was crashing, turning you know blue. And my wife had to, uh, the paramedics came and they took her to the emergency room up there while this was going on. And she ended up, you know, changing her trach and freeing up her airway and, and brought her back. They bagged her a little bit and got her O2s back. But that took probably 45 minutes to an hour. I remember sticking my head out several times asking, hey, where's, where's Perry? Because, you know, we're going to celebrate with her. She's all been a part of this like any, about any other wife. And my mom was so sweet. She's like, oh, she's just changing Gracie's diaper. She didn't want me to worry. And uh, after the third time, I'm like, come on. It does not take my wife, who's a veteran at changing diapers, uh, 45 minutes to an hour to change a diaper, even if it's one of the messiest ones on the planet. And she's like, okay, well, Gracie had trouble. So I just said, oh, my God. And I stepped out, and that's when I saw Perry. And you could just tell she was you know, wiped out and disappointed that she didn't get to you know, watch us have that good, fun time. But I just gave her a big hug and I said, okay, we're done. I'll, you know, make sure the kids are, you know, done doing their thing. We'll, I'll get showered up and we'll, we'll head on home. She's like, no, 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 have, them, have them all the fun you want us, baby. I already have. I mean, we've already celebrated. He's kind of dying down in there. It's time to get Gracie home, get you home, get everybody back to bed. So that was the only one that was different on, on my end that I had, uh, my situation for the, the partying. Uh, so it was a big emotional change from, hey, we just, we're going to the World Series to, Oh my God, we just lost, almost lost one of our children. So, you know, that was tough, but we're tough as nails too here. So God gave, her, gave us Gracie because he knew we could handle it. And we're, we're blessed to have her. And we look forward to every day we get with her, man. For people who don't know the story, she was born, what, with a very uh, unique genetic heart disorder and she survived. I mean, she really is a miracle child. Yes, she, yes, she is. And I mean, I've seen so many miracles along the way where she was nine toes, nine and a half toes in the grave several times. And, the outlook was bleak and the, the doctors had, you know, talked talk to us about hospice and things like that where they didn't think she was going to pull through. And, and she does. It's amazing how quick she'll change everybody's minds. You know, you just see them, uh, nurses and doctors, they just can't believe it. You know, they thought they wrote her off. I'm like, just telling you, give her a couple of days. You never know. This girl will bounce back. And she usually does. But she was born with uh, chromosome disorders and uh, two different chromosomes. And I'll spare you all the, the jargon, but the, all the information we had was from like 1980s. Most of the children that have her condition never make it to birth. Um, and the ones that do uh, never live past a year up until Grace. And they thought that she wouldn't live more than a year. Um, we ended up having a surgery on her heart, which made a huge difference. And Dr. Quintessenza, who our sons played with on the same uh, little league team when we first signed with the, the Devil Rays, um, we lived in Treasure Island and our sons played together and that's how we met him and he was willing to do it. And lo and behold, Dr. Q is one of the most fantastic uh, pediatric heart surgeons in the world. And he was willing to go in there and have the surgery on a, on a heart that is about as size of an acorn. I mean, to talk about talent and I mean, these guys are exceptional at what they do and they have my respect and awe of uh, what they can do for, for families to allow us to have Gracie for as long as we have. And, once she woke up from that surgery, it was like a light went off and she was a totally different kid where she could breathe and, and react. She wasn't working so hard just to stay alive. And then from there, we've had other things that she's had to overcome. But like I said, she's going to be 16 years old and, uh, at the end of the month, man. So 
she's changed a lot of lives. I mean, she's touched a lot of people, been an inspiration and motivation to many, many people, even when we go out now, even during this virus. So, you know, Grace can't wear a mask and you can tell how handicapped she is. But I think a lot of people are, give that she gives them courage. You know, like if she can be out here, we can be out here and we can get back to living some normal lives and, and not be in fear of what's around the corner um, and give them a little bit of hope and, and maybe bring them back to Jesus a little more if they're not there yet, man, because she's done that for so many people. So I'm super proud of her for that, no doubt. And you've been doing so many things with her and for her. I know at the beginning you were doing, what, a lot of either 5Ks or, or half yeah. marathons. Are you still doing any of that in, in fundraising type with work with the Knights of Columbus too? Tell us a little bit. Yeah, about yeah. Um, well, we just did a two and a half mile run with her this morning, my wife and I. So we, we take her out at least once or twice a week. You know, she loves to be in her jogger and, and run around. So we do the around the subdivision now because there's, there's no races going on yeah. per se, but Ainsley's angels was, uh, Grace was a, the, first, the ambassador for that organization here in Florida. Um, and when it first started, we would do a lot more runs with her. Um, but then she started getting sick here and there. And, and then we lost some coverage for, us to be able to go out and do that so um we had to do more stuff here and do more virtual runs uh, we tried to do one racecation with her every year um, this year was going to be in nashville we we're going to see tyler at the same time he's at his base up there and then uh do the the 13.1 mile half marathon with her uh, for the rock and roll half in nashville which got obviously canceled so rescheduled for next year but we try to do one of those a year with her um, take like a three day vacation and go up there and, and do a race and, and, you know, stay and enjoy the city wherever it was. We've done Savannah. Um, we did, uh, New Orleans uh, a year before. Um, but when it when I first started running it was more for just to get rid of some stress, uh, for having Gracie and having to care for her and, and be able to, you know, grow up mature and transition and accept our responsibility that God gave us without complaining about it. And that was great, man. It just gave me such clarity and gave me all those endorphins that people talk about, runners high, and gave me perspective on things and be able to think and, and uh, get through things like that. And it kept me in great shape for, for my career, too, because uh, what I did was, was pretty tough having to be able to pitch every single day. You got to be in pretty good shape for that. Um, so I, I decided I was going to do a, a marathon in her honor. Um, so I did the Disney. And then when I finished the Disney, um, my young kids kind of, I put the medal around Grace's neck and I looked over and you can kind of see the disappointment in there. I was like, Oh, we don't get one. I was like, well, they only get, they only get one. Um, so I knew I had to go out and do two more, you know, so they, they'd be fair. Daddy be fair to everybody. So I did two more Disney uh, marathons and I've done four full marathons total. Marathon is not my favorite event. I'll just be honest with everybody. I get beat to death in those things and I, I just don't care for that distance Half marathons I love. I think it's a great distance. And when I like to go fast, I love to do the 5Ks. And uh, I consider myself more of a triathlete than a runner. I'll do triathlons here. And I'll swim in my pool and then ride my bike in my neighborhood and then do, get off and do a run every Sunday as long as the weather's cooperating. And that's, that's kind of where we are right now, waiting for this stuff to, to die down. Um, with the Knights of Columbus, they reached out to me because they knew about her story uh, when I was in St. Louis. And they came in and did a nice a long interview about Grace's story and uh, how we care for her in my career to help promote the Knights of Columbus organization that I'm a member of. Uh, so is my father and so is Tyler. Um, and, and that was fun to do. It was an honor to do that because uh, that ended up being a global thing. So um, it's out there. Her story's definitely out there, man, for, for people to check out if they want to. She's been 
written about and had a lot of videos taken about her life. Um, she may be a little more well-known than I am. Who knows? Yeah. And you've done so much other good community work too. I mean, in 08, you were one of the ones who kicked off reading with the Rays. And then mm -hmm. after your career, I think, or maybe even while you were with the Rays, you started doing some work, I'm assuming because of Gracie, with the Miracle League, right? Yes, yes, Miracle League. That was definitely because of Gracie. Um, we were approached by uh, some guys, the Miller's Mob, they were called. Um, they were in 08, we'd do some charity work, give out some tickets and things like that. And I, my, my group was said Miller's Mob, you know, and um, there was a group of fans there that, I would come out and talk to right at, behind the dugout almost every game on my way to the bullpen. And uh, he ended up being one of those guys ended up being the one that had he kind of headed up the Miracle League down there. And uh, we were like, oh, that sounds interesting. You know, they were just breaking ground. So we went to that ceremony and donated some of our time and money and talent. And then when it opened up, I remember, you know, going down there and pitching to the kids a little bit and helping them get off to a good start. And that parlayed into uh, one in Sarasota being started. Um, they got theirs down there from a gentleman that we met just setting up Grace's uh, trust. Um, he fell in love with it and went to his city councilman and just started the process, which takes years, mm -hmm. a lot of work. And then my best friend, uh, Sean Freibert in Louisville, ended up starting one up there at our old ballpark where we played, uh, grew up playing baseball in Fern Creek, Kentucky. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful facility. So, you know, that's how, that's how our community works, man. You get involved, you stay out there, you do your thing, and you be nice to people and respect each other and use each other's resources and talents, man. You'd be surprised what we can get done around here. You've done a lot, um, and, and I hope people appreciate um, your story, your journey, and all that you've done in the Tampa Bay area, and we certainly appreciate all of your time on our latest podcast. I've enjoyed being here. I love this community. I love this town, and hopefully we get to hear – play ball and raise win real soon, guys. We certainly would love that. And we certainly appreciate you being with us along with Trevor Miller. We ask you to stay safe, stay healthy, and we will again chat with you soon. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.